He is risen. He is risen All right, I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm going to pretend that one didn't happen. All right, we have a full house today. And this is the greatest news the world has ever heard. So I'm going to play the role of a rock star at a concert right now and repeat it. He is risen. That's great. <laughs> All right, well, we have been going through the Gospel of John. If you've been with us, uh, you know that we are nearing the end. In fact, today we conclude chapter 20 uh, with only the epilogue in chapter 21 remaining. If uh, today is your first time with us, then uh, I would encourage you, as I encourage everyone, to open up your Bibles if you have one with you. Uh, as I uh, read through, you'll want to follow along. We're going to be looking at chapter uh, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. If you didn't bring a Bible with you but would like to use one, if you look in the seats in front of you, you'll find one underneath. Uh, that'll be, our text will be on uh, pages 906 and 907 of that Bible. John chapter 20 beginning at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, John says that it was the evening of that day, the first day. John is, of course, talking about the evening of the morning that Jesus rose, the morning that we're celebrating this morning. All of the Gospels report that Jesus rose on a Sunday morning, that he was 
crucified on a Friday until he died, that he was wrapped in linen, that he was buried in a tomb, and that on Sunday morning, early as the sun was just peaking, he rose from the dead. The stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb was blown off its hinges, and he walked out alive and glorified. And John and the rest of the Gospels tell us that many people that morning saw him. In fact, there was a group of women that saw him, Mary Magdalene being the first. There were some other women disciples that saw him that morning and and who talked to him. And then, uh, as we heard earlier in Luke's Gospel, there were a couple of disciples who were walking on the road to a city called Emmaus, about seven miles away from Jerusalem where Jesus had risen, and, and Jesus came walking up to them on the road. They didn't know it was him, and Jesus started telling them about how the whole Old Testament points to Jesus and his work on the cross and him being raised. And as we heard in the scripture, uh, finally Jesus revealed who he was, their eyes were opened, and Luke tells us that they ran, found the other disciples in a room, and told them that they had seen Jesus. So as we start here in verse 19 of John chapter 20, John tells us that the evening of that day, now the whole day has passed, all of these disciples are now gathered in this room together, save for Thomas, and that they've locked the doors, even though they have heard report after report after report from various people that that Jesus has risen, that he's alive, they are fearing the Jewish leaders. They've had the doors locked. They're huddled together. They, it's understandable. I mean, the Jewish leaders have just crucified their Lord, and, and they were his closest followers. And so I guess it's logical to assume that, that they're next on the chopping block. They're the next to be rounded up and crucified. So they're hiding, and John says that even though the doors were locked, Suddenly, Jesus, who earlier, as we read, vanished from the sight of the two apostles, now appears in the middle of this room. As we see here again, the old limitations prior to Jesus' resurrection no longer apply. Just as he uh, went immediately through the grave clothes, just as the stone could not hold him, neither can a locked door So he appears in the middle of the room, and and Jesus is now alive. It's one thing to hear rumors from others. It's another to see him with your own eyes. And so these disciples who are fearing for their lives now see him. He's standing in the middle of the room. In fact, not only do they see him, but he speaks to them. He says, peace be with you. He greets them. Now you would think that at this moment, all would be okay. You would think now after all of the disbelief, all of the fear, all of the thinking that others have made stories up and all of this stuff, that now that they see him with their own eyes, they're now jumping for joy. But Luke tells us that's not the case. Luke tells us, and in his more lengthy account of this, that they were all terrified. You can imagine, I mean, you know, I I think I probably would have joined them 
and being terrified. I mean, suddenly he appears in the middle of the room. He doesn't knock on the door. He doesn't walk in. You don't have to let him in. He suddenly appears. Luke says they thought they were seeing a ghost. And what we have to see here in in Luke's account and in all of the other things that we have read, again, as I mentioned last week, a physical bodily resurrection was the last thing any of them were expecting. They did not think it was coming, and so even when they see him, they think it's a spirit. Now John tells us that he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Again, John's account is a bit shortened. If we read Luke's account, he gives us more detail. He says that They were frightened, they thought they saw a spirit, and so Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So Luke tells us that Jesus goes out of his way goes out of his way to demonstrate and to reassure them that he was not a ghost. That what they saw was Jesus. He was not a figment of their imagination. They were not suffering some kind of mass hallucination. He wanted them to know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the person who was saying, peace be with you, was the same Jesus of Nazareth who had been crucified until he was dead on Friday, three days earlier. And he also wanted them to know, in addition to that, that that this same Jesus of Nazareth was truly flesh and blood, that he had been physically risen. Now Luke adds something that I've always found fascinating and that I think really deserves an entire sermon uh, on its own. But I'll mention it here this morning because I think it's important to mention. Luke says that even after they've looked at him, perhaps they've even touched him, and seen that he is truly flesh and blood, Luke says that even after all of that, they still disbelieved. It's interesting, though, what he adds. He doesn't say that they disbelieve due to skepticism. He says they still disbelieved due to joy and amazement. Today is Easter Sunday, and if you've been a Christian for long enough, you've celebrated lots of Easter Sundays. Perhaps some of you are here just because you go to church every Easter, and otherwise you really don't have anything to do with Jesus. But I want to encourage you today To really, when you leave here, think about and take to heart what it is that the Bible is telling us. The Bible is telling us that in history, in reality, over 2,000 years ago on a particular morning in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth defeated death. That he rose again And that by rising again physically, he defeated death and he defeated sin. And he walked out of the tomb alive. And if you grasp that, 
if you truly understand what that means, if you truly understand that that means that if you believe in him and you are united to him, then that you too will defeat death. That you too, although you die, will one day live forever in his glorious presence. I wonder if you grasp that today, if you will maybe for once disbelieve it because it's too good to be true. That you may struggle to believe it due to joy and amazement. And if you've never felt that, if you've never actually said, Lord, this seems too good to be true, then maybe you've never truly grasped what it means that he rose from the dead. Well, they didn't, they didn't continue disbelieving it. They eventually believed and went on to preach it. But in this initial shock, they all had all kinds of feelings. And at any rate, the initial shock and exuberance, I'm sure, died down. And then Jesus gave them a mission. We see this in verse 21. Jesus looked at this band of men and said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Now, readers of the Gospel of John, and if, again, if you've been here throughout the series, you know that Jesus has spoken of his mission as something that he was given by the Father. All throughout the Gospel, he, he talks about how he's come here to do his Father's will. He's spoken about him not taking some joy ride, but being here to fulfill a mission given to him. And now he is, in a sense, passing the baton to these men. He is saying that, that I have been commissioned by my father to fulfill a mission. I have fulfilled it, and now I am giving you a mission to fulfill. Now just think about this for a minute. This is his first meeting with them. Where is he sending them? Is, is he sending them back to their homes to cuddle up in bed and await his return? Is he, is he sending them to some faraway country where no one will know them? Is he sending them to a mountaintop to live in a monastery and huddle together until he comes back again? No, not at all. Look, look, look at what he says. I mean, Luke gives us again the fuller account. Luke says that, that Jesus is something like this, repentance for the forgiveness of sins need to, needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be proclaimed in all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And don't you understand, you're going to be my witnesses. Now, if, I, if you're there, what, what's going through your mind? Why are they even in that room with the doors locked? They're there because they're scared to death that they're going to be found out that they're followers of Jesus Christ. And as soon as he shows up and shows himself to be alive, he, he no longer, he doesn't give them uh, hardly a moment to catch their breath before he says, now, you're not going to stay locked up in here much longer. You understand that, right? I'm sending you on a mission. You know those people that you're afraid of? I want you to go out to them, and I want you to tell them that you're followers of mine, and I also want you to tell them that they too need to repent of their sins and believe in me as well. you imagine that? I would be thinking, you're crazy. But notice, he doesn't send them without first equipping them. 
Notice what he says. The, the first thing he says to them when he appears in the room is, peace be with you. The first thing he gives them is his peace. Now, peace be with you was a common greeting in those days. They said it all the time to each other. They still say it in Israel. But on the lips of Jesus, this phrase means so much more. Because after all, what did these men deserve from him? Jesus was God in the flesh. If anyone deserved complete and total obedience, if anyone deserved complete and total reverence, complete and total submission, perfect adherence to commands, it was Jesus. There's never been anyone else on this earth that deserved complete obedience without any question other than Jesus. And what did they give him? Time and time again, they, they walked away from him. They misunderstood him. They got things wrong. They stood up and said horribly wrong things. And in his darkest moment, when he needed them the most, they first fell asleep and wouldn't even pray when he asked them to, and then they ran and abandoned him. Now, when he shows up in the midst of these traitors, what do they deserve? Well, they deserve nothing but his wrath. They deserve nothing but punishment. But twice, he gives them his peace. Now, it's important to see what he does here. Because he says, peace to you twice. But notice what he does in between those two statements. In between the two times that he says, peace be unto you, he shows them his hands and his side. What Jesus is doing is he's placing the wounds from his crucifixion at the center of his proclamation of peace. They don't deserve peace, but he won it for them. Isaiah 53, which is all about the suffering servant, in fact, says this very thing. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. There was a transfer that happened on the cross. And so these undeserving rebels now get God's complete and perfect peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've ob obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Peace be with you was no ordinary greeting. Jesus, at that moment, was declaring that his death secured their eternal peace with God. They no longer had to fear God. They no longer had to fear him at all, which means that they no longer had to fear death. Once you have peace with God, your biggest problem is solved. What other problems are there? And sure, we have minor problems. Sure, the Jewish leaders are going to be a problem for them. Sure, they're going to be uh, punished, beaten, thrown in prison. But, but in the end, what could they do? In the end, what can anyone do? If you have peace with God through faith in Jesus, if it's a current possession, then you know that your future is secure. Which means that they and we can live a life with a sense of abandon. 
We can live life knowing that whatever our end here on this earth, we have peace with God. That was the first thing he gives them. So now they no longer have to fear anyone. They can go out free into the world proclaiming the Lord Jesus. But notice, secondly, he gives them his Holy Spirit. Verse 22, when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now there are two very important things that Jesus does here in doing this. First of all, he is demonstrating that he is God. Jesus, in the upper room, promised that he would send them the Holy Spirit. That was only a couple of nights earlier. John 15, Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he's going to bear witness about me. Now, in the Old Testament, it's clear that there is only one person who sends the Holy Spirit, and that person is God. There is no one else who has the power or the authority to send the Holy Spirit other than God. It is God who sends the Holy Spirit upon Samson. It is God who sends the Holy Spirit upon Saul, upon David. It is God who sends the Holy Spirit upon the servant that you read about in Isaiah 42. It's always God who bestows the Spirit on someone. And as a man even, Jesus was empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit given to him by the Father. But now, what Jesus is saying is that as glorified Lord, Jesus has the power and the authority to send the Holy Spirit himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It's interesting that here in this conversation in the upper room, you see all three members of the Trinity at work in the church. You see the Father sending Jesus, you see Jesus sending the Holy Spirit, and you see the Holy Spirit equipping the disciples. So the first thing Jesus is saying is, by saying, look, receive the Holy Spirit from me, he's saying, I am God. But secondly, it's interesting, it's very important that he breathes on them. Because by breathing on them, Jesus is demonstrating that the church is nothing less than a new creation created by God. You see, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there are only two places in, the, in that Greek translation of the Old Testament where this exact word for breathe is used. The first is Genesis 2-7, where it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The second is Ezekiel 37-9, which says, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. The first time God breathes, he creates Adam and breathes life and makes a creation. And the second time it's used, God breathes life into dry bones and brings them to life as a new creation by the Spirit. 
<clears throat> the church of Jesus Christ is sent on a mission, but it is powerfully equipped to do its mission. The church is not so much made up of people who have decided to follow a new philosophy or decided to give this teacher and his ways a try. Some of you may watch uh, some PBS show this week or last week on the resurrection and on Jesus and who he is and what he did. And generally speaking, when you watch these shows, they make it seem like Jesus was a teacher and Christians are followers of his teaching. Now, that's true, but it's not enough. It's far more than that. The Bible says that, yes, Christians follow the teaching of Jesus, but he's not simply a teacher, and Christians are not simply followers of teaching. The Bible says that Jesus is God and that Christians are new creations. That Christians are not just following a teacher, that Christians have, were formerly dead and have been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So this army of new creations goes out into the world, and you see in verse 23, the message of the church. Jesus says, look, after I give you peace and give you my Holy Spirit, he says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now that's a challenging verse, it, especially the way it's written in there. It makes it sound like God is in heaven waiting for the church to declare someone forgiven, and then he reacts on the basis of what some preacher says, or some Christian says, and then he responds. That's not actually correct. One New Testament scholar puts it this way, the Greek verbs are in the passive mood and perfect tense, which means this, the idea is not that individual Christians or churches have authority on their own to forgive or not forgive people, but rather that as the church proclaims the gospel message of forgiveness of sins in the power of the Holy Spirit, it proclaims that those who believe in Jesus have their sins forgiven, and those who do not believe in him do not have their sins forgiven, which simply reflects what God in heaven has already done. What Jesus is saying here, and I think it's something that a lot of preachers need to recover, is that when a preacher stands in the pulpit, or when a Christian is speaking to someone in the world, we're not giving our opinion about what might happen if somebody accepts or rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. He is saying here that you have the authority to say beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you believe in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, but if you do not, your sins are not forgiven. There are too many who are wishy-washy on that today, who say that I'm not quite sure, maybe many roads lead to God, maybe you can find your own way. That's not what Jesus says. And if you're here this morning, 
then this passage would urge you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of sins. Well, John tells us that one of the apostles wasn't there that evening. They were the twelve. One of them, Judas, had betrayed Jesus and gone out and hung himself. So the eleven were left. And the rest of the eleven were there that night that Jesus showed up and, and showed them his hands and his feet and, and told them about this mission and breathed on them. But, but one of them, named Thomas, wasn't there. Now, at some point during that week, Thomas was told by all of them, we have seen the Lord. And his answer to them is well known. He is called Doubting Thomas for a reason. His answer is, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, as I looked at this passage this week, I asked myself, what was the problem in what Thomas was saying? Because again, he's, he's called Doubting Thomas. Oftentimes, all you have to do is read, uh, especially older commentators like John Calvin, and, and uh, really th- this, this statement by him is, is despised as, as horrible. And so I, I, I asked myself, well, what, what is it that's so wrong with what he's saying? Because first of all, what, what is he saying? He's requesting physical proof. He's saying, I, I want to know for certain that this actually happened, that he actually physically rose. I, I want to see it with my own eyes. I, I want to touch it with my own hands. And, and that's exactly what Jesus freely and willingly did for the others. I mean, they didn't even have to ask for it. All he had to do was show up in the room and, and see that they were frightened and, and know what they were thinking, and, and he freely and, and, and willingly said, look, it's me, I, I have flesh and blood, touch me, look at me. That's what Thomas is saying. See, Christianity, yes, it, it requires faith, but it, it's not a leap of faith in the dark. Christian scriptures are not telling anyone to just believe that Jesus rose without any kind of physical proof. Jesus gave the physical proof. All of the the apostles got that physical proof. And that's what Thomas was asking. Which means that what Thomas is requesting is not, in and of itself, seems unreasonable. What Jesus did for the rest. Notice as well that when when Jesus shows up on the scene and, and speaks to Thomas, he he doesn't rebuke Thomas, at least not strongly. You could, scholars kind of read into Jesus' question there. Uh, so you believe even though you've seen as, as some sort of rebuke. But, but notice he doesn't strongly rebuke Thomas. And he, he doesn't tell Thomas he needs to repent of his sin and, and ask for forgiveness. That, that somehow seeking evidence was sinful. In fact, when when Jesus appears on the scene, he he gladly does for Thomas what he did for the others. He shows them his his hands and and side. Which means, it seems to me, that that what Thomas is requesting is not in and of itself sinful either. It's not unreasonable. It's, It's not sinful. See, 
Jesus, Scripture says, had to physically rise. He, he had to physically rise or else Christianity is finished. So if you're one of those who are here this morning and, and kind of going along with what uh, modern scholars say, which is that when the apostles said that Jesus rose again, what they mean is that he rose in their head and in their hearts. That, that these men fondly remembered what he said. That, that they went along sharing stories about what Jesus said. And, and that's what they meant by he rose. Know that Scripture doesn't share that opinion. Scripture says that if in fact Jesus did not physically rise, that if he didn't physically and actually show up and appear to these men, that there's really no reason we ought to be in this room this morning. We're wasting our time because Christianity is nothing if, if Jesus hasn't physically risen. See, it's, it's extremely important that those first apostles know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus has physically risen. That was imperative. They had to know. They had to see. They had to touch with their hands. So if that's true, then what was Thomas's problem? What was wrong with his doubt? Well, I believe it simply boils down to this. <clears throat> it was not the desire for evidence that was the problem. The problem was the disbelief of the apostolic witness. The problem wasn't the desire for evidence. It was the disbelief of the apostolic witness. What is an apostle? An apostle is an authorized representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus called 12 men to his side and, and granted them the title of apostle, he was giving to them in that moment the authority to represent him like someone has if they, have, um, if they, if they function as, as an attorney for you. Someone that, that maybe functions that way over your will or something. When you give them that power of attorney, that's what Jesus was giving to these men. Authoritative witness given that authority by Jesus himself. And they'd already been commissioned as apostles. And these men collectively tell Thomas, all of them together, that they have seen the Lord. And he does not believe their collective authoritative witness. See, it's, it's very important that Jesus physically rise. It's very important that the first apostles know and see and are convinced that Jesus has physically risen. But you see, it's equally important. It's just as important for the history of the church that the apostolic witness to Christ's resurrection be unquestioningly trusted and believed. And Thomas didn't. Thomas didn't believe it. Now we can't hear his tone. All we can see are his words. But, but if I've understood this correctly, perhaps he's saying something like this. You see, unless I get to do what you did, unless I get to touch him and see him, then I will never believe based on your word alone. Eight days later, Jesus graciously grants Thomas his request. Once again, 
The doors are no impediment to the risen Christ. Once again, they're locked in a room together. Only this time, Thomas is with them. Once again, Jesus appears in the room. And once again, with Thomas there, Jesus grants them his peace. And it is here at the end of the Gospel of John that we see the Gospel come full circle. Because notice what Jesus says to Thomas. When Jesus shows up in the room, he basically quotes Thomas verbatim. He quotes him exactly what he said to those men as if he had been in the room that day and heard what Thomas said. If you go back, all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, three years earlier, in the beginning of the Gospel of John in chapter 1, we find this story when Jesus is first gathering his disciples. Philip found Nathanael. Philip said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. We found Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus said to him, before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Here we had Nathanael at the beginning, doubting what others had said to him. And like Thomas, Jesus now, uh, to Nathanael, demonstrates his omniscience. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. That was all Nathanael had to hear. And all of his doubting melted away. When Nathanael heard him say that, Nathanael immediately said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And what did Jesus say? He, he said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. That was three years earlier, and, and now fast forward three years, and, and they have seen far greater things than that indeed. In fact, they have now all seen the greatest miracle in the history of the world, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is no longer beginning his ministry. Now he is standing in the room looking at Thomas as the crucified, risen, and glorified Lord. And he repeats to Thomas what Thomas said eight days earlier when Jesus wasn't in the room. Well, that was all Thomas had to hear. And Thomas gives a proclamation that until this moment in John's gospel, no one else had given. Thomas heard what Jesus said, and he looks at him, and in verse 28, he says, my Lord and my God. Here at the end of the gospel, doubting Thomas proclaims of Jesus something that no one else had. He proclaims of Jesus publicly what John the author said of him from the first verse. The Old Testament had many times proclaimed Yahweh to be both Lord and God. Psalm 35, Awake and rouse yourself, 
for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. The Old Testament had proclaimed over and over again that Yahweh was God and Lord. But what about Jesus? Well, by the time John wrote his gospel, it was now many, many years after that night where Thomas proclaimed it. And he began his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was, that was made. And, and you see, the word, it became flesh and dwelt among us. This, this one who was God dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And up till this point, no one else had publicly declared that Jesus was Lord and God until Thomas proclaimed it in that room. As Jesus stood there in the midst of those men, he was no longer just a rabbi. He was no longer just a master. He was indeed their Lord and God. And notice... Jesus does not reject this worship. He accepts it because he is, in fact, our God. And then he says this in verse 29. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think here is the rebuke to Thomas. I think Jesus is saying to Thomas, Blessed are those who will believe in me through the apostolic witness alone. In other words, Christian, you and I are the blessed ones. As we sit here this morning on this Easter morning, you and I, Christian, are the sheep from another fold who walk by faith and not by sight. Peter tells us, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. What's amazing is what the New Testament tells us is that even though you and I, Christian, didn't get to see the body of Christ, by God's grace, we have become the body of Christ. And what Scripture says is that when you and I, Christian, go out into the world, or when the world comes in here and sees how we love one another, the world sees Jesus. When the world sees us, it sees Christ. I ask you this morning, do you believe this? Do you believe the apostolic witness? These men saw the risen Christ with their own eyes. These men touched the risen Christ with their own hands, and they died for that belief. The Apostle John, who wrote this book and saw him with his own eyes, he tells us all this morning that he had one reason to write this book. One reason, and it's at the very end of chapter 20. He says, I wrote this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
If you are sitting here this morning and you do not believe in the Lord Jesus as the Son of God and as God, then I would urge you this morning to believe that you may have life and eternal life in his name. Christian, if you already believe, then you know that you and I walk by faith and not by sight. But you also know, because John tells us in the last book of this, of this book, that one day our Lord will return. And when he returns on that day, he is once again going to stand before his people. He will stand before us in blazing glory. And you and I will see him finally. We will see him with our glorified eyes. And on that day, our faith will be turned to sight. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for this Easter morning. Father, we're so grateful that you sent your son, that he came to earth, that he died the death that we deserved, and that he rose again to conquer sin and death. And Father, we look forward to that day when he returns. Until that day, Lord, thank you for giving us a mission to proclaim the gospel. And we pray that we would be faithful to do that until you call us home or until your son returns to call us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.